you'll want to get out your message outline. It says the promise of his death on it. Doesn't sound like an Advent sermon, but we'll get there. We're actually going to start at the very end of Isaiah 52, starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. So, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. And listen carefully as this is God's Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for making us your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah and his word to us this morning. Thank you that this Christmas, your word, as always, points us to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Focus us this morning on your word and on your Son. Help us see Jesus in his holy and precious name. We ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, about 10 days ago, we went through a remarkable 24-hour period where several famous people died on the same day. Probably won't be remembered as much as the day that JFK, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley died, uh, made famous by the imaginary conversation uh, they had courtesy of the philosopher Peter Kreeft, the wonderful little book, imagining what that conversation as they all arrived uh, at, at heaven at the same time. But still, it struck me that we had all these things happen at, at one time. Of course, the most famous of the people who passed that day was the American hero, Senator John Glenn. First man to orbit the Earth, one of the original astronauts. At that time, a phenomenal achievement. You know, at least according to the movie, The Right Stuff. You should see that movie. It's a great movie. You know, I know we have some rocket scientists, but they don't use slide rules to do that stuff anymore. So, checking with Kirk in the back there. No slide rules there. Yeah, well, they did it with slide rules back then. You know, I was like, wow. So, you know, I couldn't get that thing to work. Just, you know, I'm old enough that I actually know what a slide rule is. So... Uh, at the same time, we lost a few musical stars. Greg Lake, the lead guitarist of King Crimson and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Now, for those like Frank Wong, who know nothing about classic rock and the history of rock and roll, as we discovered earlier this week talking about the sermon, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer was one of the early pioneers in the progressive rock movement of the 1970s, along with the supergroup Yes!, they developed a whole new genre of rock music, paving the way for groups like Kansas and Toto and Supertramp, and eventually leading to the electronic music of today. We also lost the great voice of Joe Ligon. Who? Not famous. Perhaps. But if you've ever heard the gospel, then soul, then R&B sound of the mighty clouds of joy, and you've heard the amazing voice of Joe Ligon, one of the great early, early R&B groups. Moving from entertainment to faith, on that same day, we lost one of the great theologians of the last 50 years. Thomas Odin started as a liberal Methodist, was a scholar of the early church. And as he studied the church fathers, he slowly moved to a position of classical Christian orthodoxy, much to the chagrin of the academy. He wrote over 50 books, including The Rebirth of Orthodoxy. He wrote his autobiography called The Change of Heart. And he wrote an amazing book called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. His books on classical pastoral care still required reading at RTS. One of my favorite Odin quotes comes from his book, Classic Christianity. He writes, I wish I could write like this. 
He writes, we are bipeds who dream of eternity, playing God yet with masks showing our life as bums, clowns, and louts, yet bums who can say from the heart, Deo Gloria, clowns who mime the posture of Superman, louts who cannot help but conceive of the idea of perfect being. We're awed by the final judgment, but a little less so than about the brakes on our car. Inheritors of large brains, we cannot balance our bank accounts. Living souls puzzled by death. We are such creatures who take up pen and ink and scribble bold sentences about God, who breathe polluted air as we ponder the ineffable spirit, who use the name of God most often to intense cursing, yet still pray to the one we name as Almighty. The most common tribute to Dr. Odin was that he made theology beautiful. That's not a bad thing to be remembered for. And finally, we lost the world-famous, life-changing missionary doctor, Helen Rosevere. Never heard of her? Some have. The author of numerous books about missions and the Christian life. She wrote about a dozen books the most famous ones are Give Me This Mountain, which was followed by He Gave Us a Valley, and her book Living Sacrifice and Living Faith. Helen Roosevelt built three hospitals in the Congo from 1953 to 1973. She continued to minister there throughout the Congolese Civil War in the early 1960s. In 1964, she was captured by rebels tortured, imprisoned, brutally and repeatedly raped as a warning to all the other missionaries, and then tossed aside in the jungle and left for dead. She was actually saved by the natives she was ministering to who couldn't believe that somebody would lay down their life for them. And they brought her back to their mud hut and nursed her back to health. She writes about that on October 29, 1964, as she lay dying in the darkness, she writes, this is what she experienced. On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. In this darkness, however, she sensed the Lord saying to her, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings, they're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She eventually received an overwhelming sense that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me, a mere nobody in a forest, in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. As the keynote speaker at the Urbana Missions Conference in 1976, she pointed to God's goodness despite this great evil. She said, through the brutal, heartbreaking experience, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. 
He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew. I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. He understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed-up horror of emotional trauma. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. She said, one word has become unbelievably clear in my life, and that word is privilege. He didn't take away the pain or the cruelty or the humiliation. No, it was all there. But now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him in him. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed, in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. Probably the greatest missionary doctor of my lifetime. Five lives were lost on the same day. An astronaut, a guitarist, a vocalist, a theologian, and a great missionary doctor. So what does all this have to do with the book of Isaiah? Well, I think as we look at our passage today, Isaiah 53, and the promise of his death, we have to realize that God works in ways that we don't want him to. We have to realize that the good news of Good Friday was promised to us at Christmas. With the incarnation, the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us. More than 700 years before the incarnation, the prophet Isaiah made a number of promises about the coming Messiah. And today's passage, with its messianic promise of the suffering servant, helps us to understand the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're looking at Christmas in Isaiah and at what Isaiah prophesies about the servant of the Lord, this mysterious figure who's to come in the future, according to Isaiah, and will bring the salvation of God. Of course, the New Testament identifies the servant of the Lord as Jesus himself. This is, I think, the best single chapter in the whole Bible to explain what happened on the cross. The reason we know that is the New Testament writers are constantly going back to this chapter. There's at least seven passages in the New Testament that relate Isaiah 53 directly to Jesus Christ. Matthew 8, Mark 15, Luke 22, John 12, Acts 8, Romans 10, and 1 Peter 2. The suffering servant of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53 really is the basis for the apostles' understanding of what happened on the cross. And I want you to understand, as I preach this text, I not only see too much in it to tell you, there's far more than we're going to be able to cover in one day, but I feel too much about it to fully express it. And I'm telling you this not just because it's a good idea to be honest, it is, 
but also to give you a sense of the solemn nature of the text we're looking at. I want you to exercise the mental equivalent of taking your shoes off, because in Isaiah 53, we are standing on holy ground. There are five stanzas of three verses each, and I'm just going to sort of give you a bird's eye view of the text, giving you the main lesson from each of those five stanzas, five points, five lessons. There's way more than that in the text, but sort of simplified it for today. First of all, verses 13 to 15, actually at the end of chapter 52. The first lesson, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15, is about the servant's obedience. The servant's obedience, that's the first blank there in your outline, I hope. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So the servant's decision to suffer is not a matter of blind obedience to the will of God. The prophet tells us he made the choice wisely. The wisdom of the choice reflected the servant's understanding of the big picture of God's redemptive purpose. Wisdom meant that he fully realized the horrifying consequences that would follow. And by his obedience, he reversed the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden where they chose to eat from the tree of life in order to be as wise as God. The Apostle Paul saw the implications of these two decisions when he wrote in Romans 5, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And although Paul had the hindsight of the resurrection, he sums up the meaning of the servant's obedience in one sentence. Astonishment is the only way that humans can respond to the information that the servant will voluntarily suffer for the sins of others in order to sprinkle many nations with the symbolic water of righteousness. Although he will suffer pain and humiliation never known before, he will, verse 13, be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The rise of the obedient servant from the deepest disgrace to divine exaltation can't be denied. His obedience to suffering and his salvation of the nations are going to cause, says in verse 15, kings to shut their mouths in awe as they see what their sorcerers have failed to show them and they consider what their wise men had failed to tell them. And through his obedience, the servant will suffer until he appears to be less than human but then his Lord will exalt him until he is undeniably more than human. You have to understand this paradox. Look again at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The word wisely means successfully. He will triumph. But then in verse 14, it says they looked at him and they were astonished. 
because his appearance was so marred. I had to look that up. A marred appearance means to be shattered. It's a word that's often used uh, in the Old Testament to describe a city that's been invaded and destroyed. And it's when it's used of a person, it means to be so shattered by something that seeing it makes you want to vomit. You understand what the prophet is saying? Seeing the shattered face of the Messiah is so upsetting it will make you throw up. We're told his appearance was marred beyond human likeness. He's been so disfigured by violence that he doesn't even look human anymore. And to look at him is to be nauseated. This is God's servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we see? We see incredible triumph and incredible defeat. Incredible honor and incredible suffering. So why is this the first lesson? Because this mixture of good and evil will always happen in the lives of the servants of the Lord and in the lives of the people that God is using. Whether it's Helen Rosevere, whether it's you or me. I can't tell you how often I've heard people say something to the effect of, you know, I thought God loved me. I thought God was working in my life and God was using me, but then all this suffering happened. Now I know he couldn't be. You see the assumption there. The assumption is if God's really using me, if God's really loving me, he might let some difficulties into my life, but not these terrible things. And the only thing we can say is look at Jesus. Look, it's an incredible mixture, not only in his life, but look at any of the servants of the Lord. It's always sunshine and storm, success and defeat, joy and sorrow all mixed together. And the point of the matter is you never really know by looking at your own life why in the world these terrible things are happening. You can only understand the sunshine and the storm by looking at Jesus because he's the servant of the Lord. Just ask Helen Rosevere. That's how she got through it. I had to look to Jesus. That's hard to tell somebody when they're right in the middle of it and it's not going well and they're suffering. It's the best thing we have to offer. It's the only thing we have to offer. In the midst of everything, all we got is Jesus. It's not my wisdom. It's not your wisdom. Anything else, what we have to offer hurting people is Jesus. And this astounding mixture of light and darkness, success and defeat, sunshine and storm, is always there in the lives of God's servants. Understand that reality. It's the way it is. Don't say, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let things happen to me. God's wise, redemptive love in your life is absolutely compatible with rough, difficult experiences. That's the first lesson. Suffering and obedience often go hand in hand. We wish it weren't that way, but it is. And I know of no truly obedient followers of Christ who have never suffered. Maybe there's one out there somewhere, but I've never met him, and I'm guessing you haven't either. That's the first lesson. 
Moving on to chapter 53, we see the second lesson is about the servant's rejection. The servant's rejection, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Obedience to suffering extracts an incredible price in social esteem from the servant of the Lord. The depth of his suffering goes beyond belief, so much so that the prophet asks, verse 1, who has believed what he's heard from us? The rhetorical question answers itself, no one can believe that the servant grew up from such lowly beginnings that his background is likened to a young plant or a root out of dry ground. It's a nuisance and usually cut off. His background is so blighted, no one can believe that he would be the seed of the royal blood and the lineage of Jesse and David. You know, all of the romance around Christmas that time and distance have created around the birth of Christ they get a strong dose of reality from Isaiah. You know, in this description of the servant as a young plant, a root out of dry ground. Some scholars suggest that Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary scandalized the family, scarred his name, despite Joseph's gracious act of love to marry her and give her child the name. Jesus never lost the label as the illegitimate son of Mary. Such a young plant would never stand a chance for social recognition. Furthermore, the root out of dry ground may speak of the humble beginnings of Jesus in a wretched little backwater town of Nazareth. Isaiah's description of the background of the servant comes closest to a shameful birth and a low social position. And physical features, in Jesus' time, just as in our time, influence what people think of other people. When beautiful people reveal their emotional insecurities or their moral emptiness, we're surprised because we equate beauty with esteem. Ugly people live with the opposite reputation. Our first reaction to a marred appearance is rejection. Our second reaction is to devalue the worth of that person. And the Messiah is not going to have the advantage of time to communicate the beauty of his person and of his personality. To the end of his life, he'll know the sorrow and grief of being, as it says in verse 3, despised and rejected by men. Like the shock of the hideous face behind the half-mask of the Phantom of the Opera. Those who see the face of the servant will hide their eyes. Without ever knowing the person behind the mask, they'll reject him as some sort of lesser human the sorrow and grief that the servant felt from the eyes and glares meant that he understood this rejection. And rejection has serious consequences for God's servant. We see that in the third lesson, verses 4 through 6, which is about the servant's sacrifice. Some of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, although the suffering of rejection deeply wounds the Messiah, the physical beating 
that he took brings greater despair and anguish to the prophet Isaiah. The adjective stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, and the nouns chastisement and stripes explain why Isaiah had written earlier in uh, chapter 52, verse 14, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. In the vernacular of our day, we would say that the servant of the Lord was beaten to a pulp. But even as we cringe at the thought of his excruciating physical pain, tears of gratitude should well up in our eyes. We need read another set of words that explain why the Messiah suffered as he did. Counterbalancing the expressions of pain and sacrifice are the words that tell us that he suffered all that for us. Four phrases speak of the meaning of his suffering. Verses 4 through 6, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Theologians explain his sin-bearing with the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Meaning that he took our place to bear the judgment of our sin, even though he himself knew no sin. But the other side of that truth is the reason for our gratitude. All this pain is for our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. The Messiah not only took our sins upon himself, took our sorrows upon himself. Through the sacrifice of suffering, we know he understands every grief we endure because he has felt our pain. And the sacrifice of bearing our sins and carrying our sorrows doesn't stop there. Verse 5 says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His sacrifice then is not in vain. Contrary to the frustration that we feel when we try to share the burden of suffering with someone we love, but we, we usually feel sort of helpless like we can't enter in, we can't make a difference, and it, it's sort of hard to share suffering. We see here Jesus' suffering was totally effective. It brought us peace. It brought us healing. What more could you want for Christmas? You know, when Matthew recorded the healing ministry of Jesus with those who were physically sick. He explained the events in Matthew 8 by quoting Isaiah 53. Matthew 8 says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Using sacrificial language, the apostle Peter quotes the same text at length when he wrote to comfort Christians throughout the Roman Empire suffering persecution for the faith. 1 Peter 2, he said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter didn't make that up. He's quoting Isaiah. 
And he expands on Isaiah's text to seal the effective results of the servant's sacrifice. He concludes the next verse, 1 Peter 2.25, For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The servant's sacrifice is more than a matter of bearing judgment for our sins and carrying the weight of our sorrows. With all of our iniquities laid on him, we can stop straying and we can return to the shepherd of our souls. And the servant's willingness to sacrifice brings about the fourth lesson, the servant's suffering. And we've already talked about suffering throughout, but it gets more specific, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Human reason explains suffering as a penalty inflicted upon a person who's guilty. You know, deep within us is this nagging sense of cash register justice. You know, that rings in a crime and rings out a penalty. And as simplistic as that may sound, we all confess. Whenever we suffer, our first question is, what did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Maybe you've said that or thought that. Maybe you haven't. I'd like to meet you. Think of Job, righteous man. He had this question turned on him by his friends. You don't want to be Job's friends. You know, he was suffering, and they're probing and probing for the sin in his life. And when he fails to confirm all their accusations, they basically write him off as a hopeless case. Although they were supposed to be wise, their cash register justice left no room for the suffering of the innocent. And when the Messiah took on all of our iniquities, he also took upon himself the penalty of judgment against our sins. A sacrificial tone has been set. We're likened in this text to sheep who have gone astray. He is likened to the scapegoat that was sent into the wilderness bearing our sins. The Messiah is now likened, verse 7, to a sacrificial lamb going silently to the slaughter or a sheep lying passively in the hands of its shearers. And paralleling this image is the vision of a courtroom where a mock trial is being held as the Messiah bears his beatings in silence and refuses to confess sins he didn't commit. His accusers become even more aggressive in their accusations until he's falsely condemned, executed as a criminal, and buried, verse 9, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Historically, Isaiah 53 is the text for Palm Sunday. But beyond this fiasco of a trial is the proof that the servant suffered in silence because of his sinlessness. 
No person could pay the penalty for the sins of others if that person had his or her own sins. And although he was falsely accused, unjustly condemned, conveniently executed, disgracefully buried, not a shred of evidence has been found proving that he has broken the law by violence or deceit. Suffering in silence is more than gritting your teeth against false accusations. It's the inner peace of innocence that only the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has known. No one else can pay the penalty for our sin. However, the suffering of God's servant leads to something remarkable, which we see as the fifth and final lesson, which is about the servant's redemption. Servant's redemption, verses 10 through 12. Because another mystery that escapes our understanding confronts us when we read, starting at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, we find it difficult to understand how it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause the suffering of his servant. And as the prophet Isaiah has taught us throughout all of these messianic prophecies, the Lord's will is... um, his good purpose to bring redemption to the world, despite the unfaithfulness of Israel and the rejection of his servant. So the suffering of the servant then is a necessary means to a purposeful end. And as the servant is exalted, God is glorified. But even before God's will is known, the servant is honored for his obedience and his suffering. It says the Lord God will, one, show him his offspring, and all the persons who believe in him, going all the way forward to now and however long everything lasts. He'll prolong his days throughout eternity. He'll satisfy him with the knowledge of seeing the redemptive outcome of his suffering. And he'll share with him the victories of his conquest over sin and suffering. And we will join with John the Apostle to sing Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why must the servant of the Lord be exalted? Because verse 12, it says, By voluntary choice he poured out his soul unto death. You have to understand that. We don't get voluntary choice about death. Whether it's tomorrow, next year, 50 years from now, Every one of us dies. Death has a 100% track record. Except for Jesus. He ascended after his death. He could have chosen to ascend before his death. Jesus died by voluntary choice. Completely different from all of us. And by his sinless suffering, not only chose that death, but to be numbered with the transgressors. That's us. 
Why must the servant of the Lord suffer? Because by bearing our sins, he and he alone can be our advocate before the throne of the holy God and our hope for the forgiveness of sins. His sacrifice is the means to our redemption. You know, he tries to explain that to his disciples at the Last Supper. Do you remember the story they all gathered around? You have to realize there's a couple important things about the Last Supper. It, it sort of departed from the script. When Jesus stood up to bless the food, he held up the bread, and he broke it. All Passover meals had bread. And then he took the cup, and he blessed it. All Passover meals had a common cup. But none of the Gospels mention the main course. There's no mention of lamb at this Passover meal. We know from Exodus that you have to have lamb at Passover. What kind of Passover would be celebrated without lamb? There was no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table. Jesus is the main course. That's the reason when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why Isaiah 53, the prophet writes, right in the middle of the chapter, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb, that has led to the slaughter. It says he poured out his soul to death. At the Last Supper, Matthew 26, we read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. You know these words. You hear them every month. We have the Lord's Supper. Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. After the supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to him and said, Drink it, all of you. He said, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is announcing at the Last Supper, I'm the one Isaiah spoke about. I'm the Lamb of God to which all other lambs point. I'm the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. The sin, guilt, and brokenness of the world fell on him. He loved us so much, he took divine judgment on himself so we could be passed over forever. See, this advent, the promise of his death, is the promise of our salvation. And ultimately, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, 
thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and look to our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that you're the King. Thank you that we have the promise of your death, the promise of our salvation. Thank you for this chapter from the prophet Isaiah. Thank you that it's the most complete, breathtaking, amazingly rich description of what your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away our sin, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Lord, use this to change us. Use this word to help us face suffering. Use this word to help us face sorrow. Use this word to help us rejoice in the promise of our salvation. Most of all, help us to embrace that remarkable wisdom that's revealed to us in the gospel and began on Christmas Day. Lord, we thank you that Advent is the proper time. We thank you that your kingdom never ends. We thank you this Advent in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.